Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today I'm joined by two authors to discuss their papers on neurological manifestations of autosomal dominant familial Alzheimer's disease, both of which feature in this month's issue. Gentlemen, please will you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Nick Fox. I'm Professor of Neurology at uh, UCL and the National Hospital for Neurology, Queen Square, London. And I'm Randall Bateman, the Professor of Neurology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for joining us today. So, gentlemen, in both of your papers, your aim was, in part, to characterize neurological symptoms in autosomal dominant familial Alzheimer's disease. For context, could you please describe what this is and how studying it will help to understand the more common sporadic form of the disease? So maybe I should start there. Familial Alzheimer's disease or autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease is a rare form of Alzheimer's disease where the onset is much younger than typical late-onset sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And with individuals being affected in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, and the disease is inherited uh, in an autosomal dominant manner so that people have a 50% chance of inheriting the disease, typically with the same or similar age at onset as their parents if they've had an affected parent with the gene. Yes, that, uh, what Dick has described is absolutely correct. And uh, we sought to better understand this form of, this rare form of Alzheimer's disease, what we call autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, because it offers the opportunity to understand the disease in a different setting than the typical later onset sporadic form. And so because the disease is caused at an earlier age of onset, we're able to disentangle some of the factors that, and comorbidities that may influence the manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. These include things like age, other vascular risk factors that can cause neurologic deficits, and other factors that occur as we get older and other diseases have an impact, such as medications, on neurologic function. And just to, to add to that, so we felt that these these families provide a particular insight, not just because they, uh, as um, Professor Bateman says, uh, are a very pure form without these other comorbidities, but there's a really clear link between uh, the causative mutation and the disease, so that, that in a way we felt that there would be uh, v- value in terms of studying these families because we'd understand what the earliest features were, because we could study them prospectively in a way that we couldn't with late onset, but also by looking carefully at genetic associations with the phenotype, the presentation, the aged onset, what additional features they might have, which was really behind uh, our paper and I think also behind Professor Bateman's paper, to try and link up what were the particular features in this young onset rare familial form and could we associate or, or make links between particular features of the disease and the genetic drivers, which in this case we absolutely know. So Professor Fox, could you please briefly describe what you and your co-authors did in your paper and what you found? And I must absolutely credit many, many colleagues because this is a 28-year experience initially started by uh, Martin Rosser and John Hardy when they were looking for the very first gene for uh, Alzheimer's disease. And as a result of that, uh, our research center has been uh, referred many, many families over the years uh, since 1987 
where there was a concern of whether or not this could be familial Alzheimer's disease, uh, or in some cases where it really was known to be because a gene was found. So we've had the benefit of this uh, long period of studying individuals who often very generously take part in research as well as being seen clinically. And we were interested to look at First of all, what was the uh, what was the phenotype? What were the features, the presenting features, of the uh, different genetic forms of uh, Alzheimer's disease, these autosomal dominant families, and then to see what whether there were associations between particular mutations and their age at onset or clinical manifestations. And so, what we found was uh, that. There, was, there are three main genes, APP and presalin-1 and presalin-2, and we only report in our uh, paper APP and presalin-1 just because our presalin-2 cases were rare. But these two main, APP and presalin-1, account for the majority of autosomal dominant uh, Alzheimer's disease. In fact, three-quarters of our cases were due to presalin-1, and about just under a quarter were due to um, APP mutations. And the APP families were... Later in onset, typically in our series around age of 50, with a presalin 1 six years younger at 44. And these individuals also differed in terms of how common an atypical presentation was. So what I mean by that is the APP cases almost entirely had a typical amnestic forgetfulness presentation, whereas the presalin 1 cases, which were younger, had a number of atypical features, so uh, not necessarily presenting cognitively uh, just with memory uh, and not necessarily having no additional neurological features. Uh, Professor Bateman, in your paper, you and your co-authors also examined clinical and genetic data from your own cohort, and you compared those results to what has been reported in the published literature. Could you please tell us what you found? Right, so in the dominantly inherited Alzheimer's network, the global study of many centers uh, throughout the world that have come together to pool the data across various uh, families and cohorts to try to analyze in a comprehensive and a uniform way uh, longitudinally how people with these mutations do over time. And because these mutations are so very rare, it was important that these centers work together to bring um, this kind of longitudinal assessment together. And in that study, we, we sought to address several questions uh, very similar to what uh, the UCL study has shown with neurologic symptoms and manifestations. And so we went uh, through the longitudinal study of the Diane and looked at the neurologic symptoms and manifestations as they come up. And what we found was interesting in that uh, we found a certain rate of neurologic signs and symptoms which were in addition to the normal amnestic cognitive loss that occurs in typical Alzheimer's disease of anywhere from about a few percent, two to three percent, upwards of 10 percent of neurologic symptoms and signs. And these include things such as seizures, myoclonus, Parkinsonism, spasticity and ataxia. These uh, um, signs and symptoms were recorded in the dominantly inherited Alzheimer's network population at this relatively lower frequency rate of about 5 to 10 percent. When we compared this to the literature and a review of the literature for neurologic signs and symptoms, we found that this rate was somewhat lower than what had been reported 
across all the case and family reports. And so in those reports, these extra neurologic manifestations were seen in a range of anywhere from 10 upwards of 30% of the cases described. Similar to what Dr. Fox described, we compared the, the differences between these genes that have the mutations between APP, presenolin 1, and presenolin 2. And for the most part, we found a little difference between these genes at this uh, stage of the disease in the population. However, there was a higher prevalence of myoclonus seizures and spasticity uh, in the uh, populations that have the presenilin mutation compared to the APP mutation. Now, one interesting finding of this study was that uh, when we looked at the neurologic signs and symptoms, was that there was a very high prevalence of non-amnestic cognitive features. And these were described as uh, visual agnosia, aphasia, and behavioral and personality changes. And this was the opposite of what we saw in the literature, where these were much less commonly reported. These cognitive symptoms, which were non-amnestic, reached prevalences of 50 to 60%. And so a future question is, when assessed in the same way, does late-onset sporadic Alzheimer's disease present with these non-amnestic cognitive features? And we think clinically that's probably the case, but uh, we haven't focused on them quite as much in the late onset. Now, there were two additional findings in the Diane study. And one was that there was a very strong age dependence, so that the younger the person was when their symptoms began, a much higher symptom prevalence rate was seen for these neurologic signs and symptoms. And what this suggests is that age, age of onset, may have a major factor in the manifestation of the symptoms. The second thing that we reported, and others have reported this as well, that the more severe the stage of the disease, the more common was these non-cognitive neurologic manifestations, such that they may be 5 to 10% at very early stages and much higher in the 10 to 30% at the moderate to severe stages. Now, in the Diane study, our, the population has been followed longitudinally since 2008, and so the numbers of people that we have at these later severe stages is relatively low, and it may be one of the reasons why we see a lower prevalence of these neurologic signs and symptoms in the population. So if I could just come in there, I, I agree entirely, our experience entirely fits with that of the Diane experience, and we do feel, as Randy suggests, that th some of the, the uh, manifestations these described do come on later. But it is really important that both of these two papers point out that you shouldn't think that somebody has not necessarily got familial Alzheimer's disease just because they have a frontal presentation, for example. It, people can have, in our, in our case, we had about, of the presenilin 1 cases, one in six had an atypical with almost presentation initially, uh, with about 10% uh, of the total cases having a frontal behavioral or disexecutive presentation. So not like you would expect from, from typical amnestic Alzheimer's disease. And these were indeed the, uh, the younger cases, as mentioned. But we've also found a really interesting feature, which is that if we looked at the PRISLIN-1 cases, 
there was an intriguing association between the specific location of mutations and certain features. So there was a cluster of mutations on exons, around exon 4 and 5, where there was a younger age onset, suggesting perhaps a very uh, critical functional significance of that area, which is, is one very hydrophilic loop. And the atypical presentations, by contrast, the spastic paraparesis and the, pr- the pyramidal signs, were more frequent I- in um, a different part of the uh, gene, mutations in a different part of the gene around exon 8. So it's where we, I think we have an opportunity here to almost do some reverse um, trans- translation in um, looking at what the patients and their presentation and their symptoms tell us and going back and understanding what the gene itself is doing. And the final point I'd like, like to make is in our cases, while we also saw a strong association between myoclonus and seizures, suggesting that if uh, somebody has myoclonus, that is potentially a harbinger of later seizures. Well, as you touched on there, the, the prevalence of certain neurologic symptoms in individuals with familial Alzheimer's disease sometimes could vary between the cohort in, uh, in your paper, Professor Fox, and in the Diane cohort in Professor Bateman's paper. So uh, what, what do you think could explain these variations? Perhaps if I should start, in terms of sort of the, the cognitive presentation, so, so that, that difference, we report in our, our paper specifically the presenting feature rather than a, a later feature. So I don't know whether Randy would like to comment on the fact that that their paper was perhaps looking at, at it slightly differently. Uh, yeah, that's right, Nick. So in the Diane study, if the symptom was present, the signer symptom, if it was present at any stage, either presenting or later, it was recorded as uh, being present in that individual. So I, so I think that, that means that the, the papers probably are very likely to be consistent uh, in both highlighting that you can have an atypical presentation and that some of these, these features that are thought to be unusual. So do not, and, this, and I entirely agree with Randy, this is also true in, in non-familiar late onset disease in my opinion, but just hasn't been studied in the rigorous way that, that, uh, that Diane and, and, and uh, Randy's done, which is that not all Alzheimer's disease is just memory-led amnestic. And in the familial cases, that must not make you be put off a diagnosis of considering in somebody with a strong family history that it could actually be Alzheimer's disease and it could be one of these genetic determinants of autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I think that's really, Nick's point is very important, which is that um, in many cases, these families that harbor these mutations come to clinical care with after being seen by multiple physicians and frequently with misdiagnoses because uh, most physicians consider it unheard of, and, it, and although it is very rare, for someone in their 30s, 40s, or 50s to have Alzheimer's disease, and especially if there's any unusual presentation or manifestation within the family. So, for example, other relatives may be misdiagnosed with having psychiatric illness, multiple sclerosis, frontotemporal dementia, and it may not be evident when a person presents with these symptoms to a physician's care that the family history is actually one of a family history of dementia. 
And so I think that's quite important to uh, be aware of so that these families can be properly referred and uh, diagnosed and treated uh, because there now are opportunities out there for them. And Nick was touching on uh, some of the differences between the studies. Uh, you know, one difference is the population itself. And as I mentioned in the Diane study, the population tends to be in the milder stages of the disease. And so I, I think the difference in prevalence rates that the two studies found may in large part be to, due to the um, stage of disease. There are a few other smaller differences but I don't know that those differences uh, are likely to account for any substantial uh, difference between the groups or the studies, except that the, the UCL group had started uh, decades ago and had followed these people longitudinally, and more recently UCL and, and, and others across, uh, other centers across the world uh, joined in launching the Diane study, which is this collaborative network. And so since Diane is now in its uh, eighth year, I think we're just now getting in the, the later stages of the disease for the population, and we'll be able to address that uh, better in future longitudinal studies. Well, thank you so much. And finally, gentlemen, uh, both of your papers share a very important message that recognizing heterogeneity and clinical presentation of Alzheimer's disease is critical. How might these new findings affect the direction of diagnosis, treatment, and research? Well, um, I think the key thing is, is exactly as Randy has, has pointed out, that we see that many of our families uh, often have a delay in diagnosis or a misdiagnosis. So that's important. And, and um, there is so much more that we can offer, really very much due to the work that uh, Randy and uh, the Diane team have done, we now, for the first time after decades of us having seen, I've seen people for, for decades and be telling them that there will be research trials about to start, and then I'll see the, uh, them a few years on, and yes, trials are about to start, and, and finally they are. And uh, the, the Diane has launched therapeutic trials, which means it's not just important uh, for getting a clinical diagnosis and care in place, but also there is more to offer in terms of therapeutic trials, which hopefully will change the course uh, of this uh, dreadful disease. And then the second thing, since you mentioned research, is I do think that these young onset cases and these families have got so much to tell us. They've so much determined uh, much of what we understand about um, the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, but there are yet more uh, that they can tell us still. And I think looking at some of these genotype-phenotype correlations with a properly studied, very much like Diane's doing, longitudinal approach, will throw up some interesting uh, questions and point us uh, to some of the answers. Right, and so I, I completely agree with Nick and his points about what, uh, what can be done in the future. One of the things that we're looking to do is to compare now uh, these neurologic signs and symptoms as they present in the early onset form of the disease with the later onset, the sporadic form of the disease, and try to address the question of um, how these neurologic signs and symptoms are related to the Alzheimer's disease process itself, what are the interactions with age, and other comorbidities that come with aging. And so we think these are essential research questions to understanding the disease. And as uh, Nick has pointed out, uh, the Diane 2 trials have now been launched all over the world at various centers, including 
uh, Nick's center at UCL, led by Kath Mummery. These um, centers are running a trial to try to change the course of the disease. And in so doing, using a variety of drugs under development to try to slow, stop, or prevent Alzheimer's disease. And in these very rare population of families that get these early onset forms of the disease, we think there's great promise and hope that one day we would actually be able to prevent Alzheimer's from even starting. And on that really positive note, I think it is just a, f a fantastic change in what we can offer people. And it only is possible because this is a, these are rare conditions by centers working together across, across the world. And I just want to add one other thing. If physicians or researchers or family members are interested in this research, uh, they can go to a website and register their interest and get more information. And so that website is uh, dianexr.org or dianxr.org. Fantastic. So that's dianxr.org for more information for families. Well, Thank you both so much for joining us today. It's an absolutely fascinating podcast and it uh, really really seems to provide so much hope for the future. Thank you gentlemen so much and thanks to you for listening today on The Lancet Neurology.